Hi, welcome to the Spiritually Minded Mom Podcast, where every mom can find hope, joy, and God's hand in motherhood. You'll hear interviews with all kinds of moms who are learning how to navigate motherhood. Most of all, you'll learn that you have a partner in motherhood, a loving Heavenly Father who wants you to succeed and is always there to help you in your most important work as a mother. And now, here's your host, my mom, Dara Trendler. Welcome to the Spiritually Minded Mom podcast. I am excited that you are here today. I have an interview today with a good friend of mine, someone that I know personally who lives in my neighborhood, and she has an amazing motherhood story that I'm excited to share today. Her name is Ashley Williams, and I would like to welcome her to the podcast. So welcome, Ashley. Hi, thanks for having me. So glad that you're here. Okay, we, we're going to jump right in because you have a really amazing story to tell. And I want I want us to have enough time to cover everything. So let's start off and talk about motherhood for you. And actually, wait, hold on. <laughs> let's back up. Just tell us a little bit about yourself before we jump in. I totally got ahead of myself. So tell us about your family, you know, what, what you guys are like, what you like to do, just a little something about you. Oh gosh. Um, I feel like we're a pretty average family. My husband works for American Airlines and I have two daughters. Sadie is eight and a half and Scarlett is four and a half. And we love movies and my girls love everything that involves animals and teeny tiny toys and books. And yeah, we just enjoy being together and yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to say, cause you're not going to say this, that you're our amazing cake decorator. You make the best cakes. I've been the recipient of them. They are so great. And if you don't mind, I'm going to link to your Instagram account for your cakes. Cause they're so great. Oh, that would be great. Thank yeah. you. So, so Ashley is very talented and, and just a wonderful mother. Um, I totally love her family, but let's jump in and talk about your motherhood story. So I know that that you've told me in the past that motherhood was not an automatic thing for you and it really didn't happen as easily as you thought it would. So will you tell us a little bit about your experiences of trying to become a mother and how the Lord prepared you for that time in your life? So actually it goes way back to when I was about 11 or 12. I think back then we were called the Mary Miss before we were, <laughs> before going into beehives or whatever. And, um, I remember um, I used to babysit a lot when I was little. Like I was always booked every single weekend from about I, the time I was 10, 11 years old until, you know, I got too busy in high school. And um, I remember one day um, we were at some sort of church activity and I don't remember what it was, um, but I remember having the very clear thought come to my mind that I was not going to have a very big family. And it, that was such an odd, such an odd thought because like I said, I babysat all the time. I have three younger sisters. I've always, always wanted to be a mom. And I remember thinking, well, that's, that's kind of weird. I wonder, I wonder why I think that. Am I not going to like kids when I'm older? Um, am I going to be a bad mom? You know, I know, but I mean, I didn't think about it too much. And then uh, when my husband and I got married, I spent the first two years of our marriage uh, finishing up my master's degree in oboe performance at ASU. And I was very, very busy with school, very busy in my career. And I remember kind of the plan was for me to take another year or two 
to work with my chamber groups and um, continue to take auditions and just kind of see where that path led me. But the summer after I graduated, uh, again, I had a very distinct impression that I needed to, we needed to start trying to have a family. And we were both a little bit shocked by that because, you know, we are planners. We like to plan things, <laughs> <laughs> which sometimes I think the Lord has a little bit of a sense of humor about because, you know, we are not really in charge. And um, anyway, so we started trying to have kids and we, again, like I said, are planners. So we were talking about baby names and we were talking about if we had a boy and if we had a girl. And when we were talking about girl names, we kind of said the name Sadie. And right when we said that name, it was a very, very powerful experience for both of us. We both just looked at each other and it was like, that was the name. We weren't even pregnant yet, but we knew at some point we were supposed to have a Sadie. And I honestly, I kind of felt, I kind of felt her presence hanging around from that moment on. But then we just kept not being able to get pregnant. And I remember being kind of frustrated with the Lord and thinking, you're the one that told me that I needed to do this. And how come you're not letting me do it? And it took years. It took uh, over two years before we were able to get pregnant. And that included multiple doctors, um, incorrect diagnosis. Uh, we thought about adoption. And then, um, then I finally found a really incredible doctor who was able to figure out what was going on with me and was able to perform the surgery that I needed to have in order to become pregnant. And then sure enough, once we were able to find out the gender, we found out we were having a little girl. And so we knew that her name was supposed to be Sadie. And I remember pondering on it after getting pregnant and after having her and looking back and thinking, you know what, the Lord prompted me to do that because had I waited that two extra years to focus on my career, then that would have been two more years that I mm -hmm. would not have had her. You know, it would have taken me five years to get my baby girl instead of three. And which maybe doesn't seem like a long time, but at the time it really felt, it felt like a long time. And, and I remember thinking that maybe it would never happen. And I just pleaded with the Lord. I said, I, I would like to just be pregnant once. I would like to have a little person that is part me and part Spencer and to feel her inside of me, you know, those things. And, and yeah. I told him if I could just get, if I could just have that once, like I, I will be happy. I will not ask for anymore. And I'm glad that I listened to that prompting because I'm glad we got her when we did instead of later. Yeah, that that's a real tender mercy that, and I think it shows, you know, follow the promptings that you get, even if it doesn't make sense at the time, right? Yeah, definitely. And so, and I love the perspective that you can sometimes get from a trial. Like when we're in the middle of it, we don't see the purpose. But now you can look back and say, you know what? Heavenly Father knew what he was doing and he knew the timing that I needed to have and and he made that happen. So it's a great example of just trusting and, and going forward when and doing what you know was right, even if you don't understand why. I think... I think your story really illustrates that well. So you got Sadie and this is, she's the sweetest girl. I love her. 
But you mentioned that you were in school and going to school to be a musician. You were a professional oboist. So will you, I want to talk a little bit about your career because that's a big part of your motherhood story. So will you just tell us a little bit about your career as a professional oboist? You know, what had you done to get there and, you know, what were your plans with all, with that and, and all of that? Sure. I, I picked up the oboe when I was 11 years old and that also has its own backstory a little bit. I, I honestly believe that Heavenly Father also helped me do that. Like I, all the circumstances that went around that, I didn't pick the oboe. The ob- the Lord picked the oboe for me. Really? Um, so how did that happen? How, how do you feel like he picked it for you? Well, when I was younger, so I've always been, I've always had a knack for things that are like more creative. Just, I love, I love to be creative and art and music and um, all those things. And um, so I had, I had been a, an artist when I was younger than that. It seems so weird to say like, you know, before I was 11 years old, but I yeah. mean, I would spend all my time drawing and drawing and I had this huge portfolio of things that, and I just loved all things art. And so at 11, I was in the sixth grade and that was, you know, when you were allowed to choose electives to do. And I was able, uh, I was able to sign up for, you know, some other class of my choice. Well, my mom was visiting her mom in Canada at the time. And so my dad was in charge of registering us for school. (laughs) So naturally (laughs) we registered late and all of the art classes were full and I was devastated because that's what I was planning on doing. I wanted, I wanted everything to do with art. And I had had a couple years of piano. And so my dad said, you know what, you, you can read music. Why don't you give band a shot? Let's just give band a shot and you can just try it for a semester or a year. And then when you can re-choose your classes, you know, you can do art then. And I really didn't have any other options. So I was like, all right, fine. And so I went through class and they spend the first couple weeks teaching you about music and everything. And then they put this big list on the board of all of the instruments we had to pick from. And he said, my, my director said, pick your top three. So I wrote down flute and I wrote down oboe because I thought it sounded funny. I was like, that's weird. <laughs> when, you're, gonna... when you're 11, that's what you think, yeah. right? I was like, I'm gonna throw that in there. What's that? I don't know. So um, I wrote that on the board and then I think I wrote clarinet and uh, my director approached me the next class and uh, he wanted to look at my hands. He's like, let me look at your hands. And I said, okay. And uh, I have long skinny fingers and and the oboe has a really wide spread. It's actually of all the instruments. um, It has the widest finger spread of any of them, even though it's very small. And um, he said, you are one of the only people that put oboe on your list and you have the perfect hands to play them. So will you play the oboe? And I said, okay, sure. Sounds good. <laughs> Didn't ask any other questions. I went home and I said, mom, guess what? I'm going to play the oboe in the band. And she was like, awesome. What's an oboe? And I went, I don't know. I thought you would know. <laughs> um, and anyway, from there, it turns out it was my grandfather's favorite instrument. He got me lessons. He bought me, he found a great deal on an instrument for me. It just kind of all, it just kind of all started there. And so I started practicing I mean, I would practice hours a day, even, you know, as an 11, 12 year old kid, I was always in state competitions and district competitions. I, I really did have a very natural knack for it, which is another reason I, I say that I think that the Lord had that in store for me because the oboe was really hard. Really? Yes. Really hard. Well, I play the clarinet. 
I played in junior high. <laughs> and so, and I know like the oboe was like, nobody played the oboe because it was right. way too hard. Like, right. you know, that was a way big step up from the clarinet. So I get right. that. Well, and again, I started, we were living in Texas, Texas, their, their music programs and their band programs. It's like a big deal down there. So oh, they actually hired a private teacher to come and teach me during band class wow. so that I could get good at it. You know, I mean, I just was in the right place. Well, then we moved to North Carolina. And um, when my mom called the school to register me and I have an oboe player who wants to be in the band, the director said, mm, no. Oh, <laughs> he had said, no, I'm sorry. I don't want a middle school oboe player ruining. I don't, I don't want a noble player ruining the band. Apparently this had happened to him before. Because it's it's true. Man, you got a bad oboe player. You can you can hear it for miles and it can for sure ruin the sound of a so whole this, entire. This band director's pretty skeptical of your mom. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. You got an oboe player. <laughs> yes. And and he said, if it'll make you feel better, she can come down and audition. But I can just tell you right now that, you know, it's probably not going to happen. My mom didn't tell me this when I was in college. I had no idea. She just told me we were going to go play for the, you know, we're just going to go play for your new directors. Oh, you can yeah. see where you fit, fit in. So I wasn't worried, you know. And as soon as I played for him, he was like, welcome to our band. I'm so excited <laughs> to have you. Anyways, I ended up, so I played all through middle school and high school. And um, I ended up getting a full ride scholarship to ASU. And I got my degree there in music performance, oboe performance. And I started freelancing a lot when I was there. I actually started freelancing when I was about 15, when we lived in Santa Fe. So I've been getting paid to do it since I was about 15 yeah, years so old. So you were a professional. This was a job. Yes, for sure. As a freelancer, I held a couple positions. Like I played English horn. I was the English horn player for the uh, Symphony of the West Valley and for the, the, it was called the Mesa Symphony at the time, but I think the Symphony of the Southwest is what it's called now. But really in my career, I mean, I played, being freelance, you kind of, you kind of go wherever you get called to play and wherever, you know, or sometimes you audition for those roles so that they know they can count on you when they need someone to step in. So I actually was like one of the first call subs for the Phoenix Symphony. So I would go in and play whenever anybody got sick or they needed an extra player. Um, I've played, I played two or three seasons of um, all the Nutcracker ballets with them on English horn. And I've played for the, uh, the Tucson Symphony and the Phoenix Opera and the Arizona Opera. And I've even gone and played up in Prescott with their symphonies, uh, kind of everywhere, all over the valley. Um, it was a, I had a concert pretty much every weekend or every other weekend, most of the time, you know, rehearsals multiple times a week. And then I also was a part, a founding member of a couple different chamber groups and ensembles. Mm -hmm. So, so you had Sadie, you know, you, you had those years of trying to conceive and have a baby. And then you had Sadie. Where did all of these performances fit in with that? Were you doing all that while Sadie was young, when she was a baby? Yeah, when she was a baby, um, I actually had an opera to play when she was eight weeks old. So I went, I started playing right away, maybe like two or three weeks after I had her. When she was that little, I could just practice in the same room with her and she would sleep, you know, newborns. Yeah. She was used to that. I mean, being in in my belly and everything, she was very used to music. And so she would sleep a lot when I would practice. When she kind of outgrew that phase and, you know, we're practicing, we keep her awake. Um, a lot of my a lot of my rehearsals and performances were in the evenings. Usually if I had to play for the Phoenix Symphony, you know, for them it's a full-time job. And so that would be during the day. 
So during those things, my luckily I had my mom who lived close, and so she would watch her for me. Or we've had wonderful, wonderful neighbors. So friends would take her during the day. Usually a typical day for me looked like I would get up in the morning and get her ready and we would play and we would do our thing when she would go down for a nap for two or three hours. As an oboe player, not a lot of people know, you have to make your own reeds that you play on. And one reed really only lasts maybe a couple rehearsals or like a performance. So it's a constant everyday thing. So I would spend her nap time making reeds and then she would wake up and we would, you know, play or go run errands. Um, as soon as around like 3.30 hit, I would teach private lessons from my home. I had a private studio. They they would come and she was really pretty good about either just watching a little show or some of the moms would come and loved to kind of play with her while I was teaching their mm-hmm. kids. And then a lot of times, as soon as Spencer walked in the door, I would hand her over to him and I would run to a rehearsal or a concert. And the nights where I didn't have a rehearsal or a concert, as soon as I put her to bed, I would go into our office and put a towel under the door and I would practice until 11 or 12 because that was really the only time I could practice with an infant or a toddler around and just kind of repeat the next day. Wow. So I I really want to just paint this picture like you were at the top of your game. You are doing this thing that you love and you also were were balancing motherhood with it. And, you know, kind of you kind of were like, I mean, from my point of view, looking in, you kind of had everything like you had it all. You were you were doing everything that you had always dreamed of doing. But and here comes the part of your story that where you basically had to choose Um, you had you know, you had to choose motherhood over your career. And that came about not in the way that most people might think. It was a very unique way. So will you just tell me a little bit about what led up to that decision? Gosh, as soon as I had her, I I really started feeling that like tug at my heart, you know, that if you know me, you know that I am very much a 100% person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like to do anything less than the very best of my ability. And that's really hard, I feel like, to be a mom and feel like I was being the very best mom that I could be and also do what was needed and expected of me in my career to, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, you just as a musician, like you can't, especially a freelance musician, if you make a big mistake, they just don't ever call you back. Yeah. You know? So I there's mean, a lot of pressure there. Yeah. If you're, if you're out of tune, if you have a bad read that day, they don't care. They just, you know, if you didn't get enough practice because your toddler didn't take a good nap or, you know, because you were busy with things or your kids were sick. I mean, it was, it was really, really hard to feel like I was as good a musician as I knew I could be and wanted to be. And that I was feeling like I was spending enough time with my family and my husband, you know, because a Mm -hmm. lot of times I felt like I was the parent to her one part of the day and he was the part the other because I was always gone in the evenings. So it had kind of already started tugging at my heart, like, oh, this is really hard. How can I do this? And then I started to think, I want more than this. If I can't have more than this, I want more than just one kid. What am I going to, what am I going to do then? How is that going to impact it? So right away when I went back to playing, I noticed that my body felt differently. And at first I just thought, well, I've had a baby. Of course, everything's moved around. Everything's different. I took, you know, four or five weeks off of playing. That's, I just kind of pushed it out of my mind. 
And then those things kept getting worse. Um, things like I couldn't hold my phrases. Um, my arms were turning purple. I um, was getting dizzy. My heart was racing. I was getting chest pains. Just things that really weren't normal. And so about the time she turned a year old, I was like, okay, these things aren't going away. If anything, they're getting worse. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can figure this out. And I was pretty certain it maybe had something to do with my heart because as a musician who uses your body kind of, I mean, it's like an extension of your instrument. Yeah. Felt like I knew my body pretty well. So I, you know, I would go to a doctor and I would say, I, um, I think something is going on with me and they would check me out and they would say, Nope, you're totally fine. And I would say, well, it's only when I play my instrument. Like I don't feel this way all the time. I can exercise. I can do anything. It's only when I when I play into my instrument. And they would say, no, no, no. Um, if there was something wrong with you, we'd be able to find it. And you would think that that would be what I wanted to hear. Like, okay, great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that peace of mind. But I just felt the Lord, like I really felt the Spirit telling me, nope, that's not right. Something else is going on. You need to figure out what it is. And I mean, I even had one of those doctors, it was getting to the point where I couldn't stand after a concert without falling over. Like I'd have to grab onto my second oboist, um, to hold me up so that I could stand when the orchestra is required to stand after the concert's over. So, so what are you doing at this point? You just keep going from doctor to doctor or, you know, was there some other way that you found someone that would really listen to you? Yeah. After a couple doctors, I called, I have an uncle who's a pulmonologist who deals with lungs and blood oxygen and all that stuff. And so he was the one that said, yeah, it does. This does sound really weird. He said, you know, go get a pulse oximeter from Walgreens. He's like, I want to know what your oxygen level is doing when you're playing. And he had me test it on some oboe players because he said, you know, I don't know if you guys are just weird. I don't know if it does something (laughs) crazy. Go test it on them. I want to know what theirs is. And then I want to know what yours is. So I did it on a couple colleagues and theirs was normal, 98, 99, hundred percent. And then as soon as I put it on my finger and started playing, my oxygen was dropping into the 60s. Wow. Which is really bad. And my heart rate at the same time was spiking to like 195. And he, as soon as I told him that, he was like, oh, something is going on. That is not good. And that was the first time I had a little bit of peace, which seems so backward. Yeah. But it just felt like the Lord was telling me, yes, this is, this is what you need to be doing. You need to be figuring this out. So he talked to his head of cardiology, who knew the head of cardiology at the Mayo Clinic out here in Scottsdale. So that doctor actually personally called me. If I had tried to get a hold of that doctor or I had tried to see him on my own, it would have never happened. There's no way I, you know, without right. all these other connections that I would have gotten in to see him. And Within five minutes of, of meeting with him, he said, I have a pretty good idea of what's going on with you, but we're going to do all these tests just to back it up. And again, they did an echo on my heart. Like I said, he knew what he was looking for and he didn't see it. They did about an hour long echo and he was like, I can't find it. So he was the first one that actually said, yes, bring me your instrument. And so then he he had me sit up and they kept the echo wand on my heart and they started pumping saline bubbles through my arm and had me play. And sure enough, it showed that the pressure of playing the oboe, it's actually puts a lot of pressure on your cavity. You're blowing through a very small, small reed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like, if you were to, if you were to, um, blow up those animal balloons, you know, the really long skinny ones Yeah. all the time. Um, that's essentially kind of what it feels like to play the oboe. So I was doing that for hours, you know, at a time. 
And that pressure opened up a little hole in my heart. So it was only happening when I would play and it had apparently always been there, but somehow being pregnant had made it worse and made it more noticeable and to mm-hmm. where you know, I, was, I was getting those feelings. And, and that's what they discovered was, was wrong. Yeah. The one thing that you do causes this. Yeah. Know? The thing that you love and that you've worked so hard for is causing this. So what was their recommendation to fix it? So at the time, their recommendation was to, you know, go in through my chest and have it and have it repaired. There was an option of going in through my groin um, and putting a patch on it. But I was a very unique situation because, I mean, like I said, the only reason that they found out about it was because of me playing the oboe. He said, if you weren't an oboe player, you would not have even known that you'd have this. Mm -hmm. And so he said, we can't guarantee that the patch will hold because of the pressure that you constantly are putting on your body. And um, because it had just not been ever documented in another oboe player. And so he said, I really think that we should go through your chest and, and do open heart surgery. And I, my husband and I just didn't feel good about that. You know, um, by the time I was finally diagnosed, Sadie was two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember him saying, you won't be able to pick anything up for like three months. <laughs> and I just oh. thought, um, will an insurance pay for a nanny? <laughs> like, right. How am I supposed to get her in the car? How am I supposed to get her in the bath? What about if she, you know, is, throws a tantrum? Not that she was, she actually really was a very, very good baby. But, um, but I mean, just, I felt like you can't pick up your child. I just felt like I didn't know how I could really take care of her. And there was no guarantee for my career either. So, you know, having to have the surgery, who knows? I mean, it probably would have been months before I could even play again. And so I'm losing all that work. I'm losing all my connections. Maybe it would be the same. Maybe it wouldn't be the same. We just felt like there were so many risks that would impact my body and our family. And, you know, we just felt like being a whole healthy mother and wife was at that time just kind of put everything in perspective. Like it just really made me think, no, like my daughter and my, that is more important than my love for the oboe as much as I, as much as I loved it. And I was devastated, but I also, I really did feel at peace. I felt like it was kind of the Lord saying, you know, you, a time and a season, like your season for that is over. You need to focus on your family. It kind of felt like he was saying, I knew you couldn't make this decision on your own. So, <laughs> so here you go. Let me help you out. Um, and I think maybe when I say that, some people think, well, that's that's mean, you know, for the Lord to like take something away from you. But I really felt like I had, I knew that the Lord had given it to me in the first place. Yeah. I knew, I knew that it was his doing, that I had had all of that. And I... You know, I got to premiere an opera in Italy. I got to travel to Greece for a music festival and play principal oboe. I met so many wonderful people. It taught me so much about discipline and hard work and talent. And, you know, I have a lot of people ask me, well, don't you feel like you wasted all those years of your life? And I just think, are you kidding me? It, I did so much and it taught me so much that for sure it was not a waste it also kind of felt good to be able to like kind of be given permission to just be a mom 
You yeah. know, when I'm playing with her, not be thinking, oh, I should be practicing or, oh, I should be making reads or missing out on things. You know, Christmas time. Gosh, being a musician at Christmas time is so hard. Yeah. I'm, all the family parties, all the fun, you know, um, activities that everyone does because when you're playing 40 Nutcrackers in two weeks or, you know, three weeks, it's just it really takes a toll. And it's actually been harder as I've gotten further from it and my kids have gotten older it's like harder now I feel than it was initially so so you decided not to have the surgery and everything has been fine since then and you've been these these years raising your daughters and I'm sure that you have hard moments so like you like you were alluding to so how do you get through those hard moments and then on the flip side what blessings have you seen from making that decision The hard moments, honestly, being close enough to the spirit to be able to to feel the spirit and know that I was making the right decision and to really feel like it wasn't a punishment, you know, that this was just a trial. This is just life. Um, It really, I mean, it really helped me to get through it knowing that the Lord was with me through it. You know, I'd never felt alone or by myself. I mean, that helped me so much. And it also really kind of taught me that we can't always control what happens to us, but we can always control our reaction to it. Right. We can always control how how we react and how we treat others because of those things. And I've actually had several people say to me, like, well, you don't seem that upset about it, you know, and I would think, oh, gosh. You just don't even know. But yeah. what's, what is my option? Like, am I going to stomp around like a toddler and scream and cry and tell everyone that I know that this huge part of my life has been taken away from me? That doesn't do anyone any good. Right. You know, it doesn't do me any good to dwell on it. So I don't know. That was a big lesson for me to just learn that um, through our trials, we learn something. We can be empathetic toward others. And I mean, our life is going to be full of trials. So we can make our life, I think, better, you know, depending on how we react to them. Yeah, I think, I think that it's a lesson that we can all apply no matter what we go through. I mean, it's not going to, we don't all go through the same trials. You know, your trial was different than my trial or someone else that's listening, but really we can all choose to react. You know, we have a choice in how we choose to react and we can choose fear or we can choose faith you know, we can choose trust or we can choose to, to just, you know, push him away. It's, it's always a choice. And I think that's what your story illustrates so much. And I remember when you were going through all this and, and I, I always have marveled at how much faith you had and how you, you know, I think a key thing there is that you stayed close to him. You didn't push him away. You know, you did the things that you knew you needed to do to have a relationship with him. And, that that's the beautiful part about your story is, you know, not that you had to give something up or, you know, that you chose motherhood or that he chose it for you or however you want to describe it, but that you stayed close to him and that you trusted him. And to Mm -hmm. me, that is absolutely remarkable. So just to end, we're going to end on that note. And I think we could talk a lot more about your story and I've, I've loved that you've been so willing to share it, but I always end with one question and I would like to ask that to you as well is, and that is how have you seen and felt God as your partner in motherhood? I feel like actually being a mother has brought me so much closer to heavenly father. And I feel like it gives me a, a little window into how he must feel towards us. 
like when I'm looking at my kids and they're struggling over, you know, not being able to tie their shoe or I poured them the wrong glass of milk or whatever trial, you know, they're going through and it's so upsetting to them. And, but as their mom, I'm looking at them going, oh gosh, this is not that big a deal, (laughs) you know, and thinking you'll get through this. I promise, you know, I'm right here. And I just sit back and I think that must be how Heavenly Father feels about me. When I'm whining or complaining about something, you know, he, he knows the bigger picture. He can see my potential and he knows what I'm capable of. And, and that gives me peace and comfort. And then it also helps me with my own children to let the spirit help me help them work through their own things and, and show them compassion, but also teach them discipline and show them that, uh, you know, the big things that really matter. Um, I just feel like it's helped give me that perspective. Um, and also just with the atonement too, knowing that, gosh, most nights I go to bed praying and pleading to my heavenly father to, you know, like, that my kids want to end up in therapy or, or maybe they will, but just saying I did my very best. Please let them know how much I love them and that, and that they know I'm doing their very best and, um, you know, learning to, to tell them that I'm sorry and that I tried, but that I'm human, but bring that all around into the gospel. You know, that we're all going to make mistakes. We're all trying. We all need to love each other and be helpful to one another and, I don't know. I hope that answers no, your question. <laughs> absolutely. I love your perspective on how becoming a mother has helped you to understand your relationship with God. Uh, that's that's exactly right. Like we, you know, if you're struggling to have a relationship with him, think about how much you love your kids and how that is just unconditional and you just want to be there for him. And that's the way he feels about us, right? So I, I think if you can look at it in that way, it really gives you some great perspective on on how he feels about us. I mean, we can't even fathom how much he loves us, but it gives us a little bit of that perspective and and just to be able to teach our, our children to love themselves that way. And th- that was a great answer. So thank you so much, Ashley. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity and 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 even just to give me a second to ponder over these things again and to think about them and and to you know, I always take more away when I come back at things over and over again, like different lessons. Yeah, it is really good to have a, a time to pause and think about the experiences that you've had and, you know, realize what you've learned and how you've grown and all of that. It's just really, it's really great. So thank you so much. I appreciate you being here today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I know you have a million things to do, and I'm grateful you took the time to listen to today's podcast. I hope the episode helped you to know God is your partner in motherhood. For show notes, head over to spirituallymindedmom.com. For more motherhood inspiration, follow along on Instagram, at spirituallymindedmom. And if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with a friend. I would love it if you would leave a review and rate it on iTunes. This helps more moms to find hope, joy, and God's hand in motherhood. Have an amazing day, and remember, you are doing God's work, and you are doing it wonderfully well.